This week, at long last, David Blaine. I had tried to book the renowned illusionist and endurance artist for years, dating back to 2015. I even had Tom Hanks tape a message for him. Here's something for David Blaine. Hey, come on, man. Come on, give Graham that time. Whether it was because of Hanks or my sheer persistence, I finally convinced Blaine to sit down for an interview at his office in New York City. My strength, I feel like, is, is more based on doing magic as opposed to talking. Ahead, the man who's buried himself alive and frozen himself in ice reveals the inspiration behind some of his most memorable stunts. I had watched that act since I was a kid. And remembers how he got his big break. While living in my friend's pantry room, I spent every penny to make that show. He also opens up about his father's tragic life. My mother had waited for him, and he was now hooked on heroin. Resilient mother. After a suicide attempt when she was 18, then she just tried to find meaning. And the real-life magic of becoming a parent. The greatest experience of my entire life. It gives you a purpose. But first, we begin with Blaine sharing how he overcame his fear of public speaking. I did a TED Talk, which was very difficult, jumping into the fire pit, and I did it without magic, just speaking. And that was kind of the first time that I did a talk where I had no magic to stand behind. And how did you feel about that? It was very hard. I was very awkward and stuttery, but it was, it was nice to work on a talk, so it was interesting. As a magician, I try to show things to people that seem impossible, and I think magic, whether I'm holding my breath or shuffling a deck of cards, is pretty simple. It's practice, it's training, and it's ex it's practice, it's training, and experimenting while pushing through the pain to be the best that I can be, and that's, uh, that's what magic is to me, so thank you. Towards the end of it, you got a little emotional. Because everybody thinks when I do magic that that relates to the endurance. Everybody always thinks that I'm cheating or it's a trick or something like that. So it was, when I finally put it all together as, as one coherent thought and worked on it diligently for a long time, most of the people that, that, that are close to me, they like that talk because they feel it's like, it's very honest. By the way, Richard Werman was the one that asked me to do that and he had asked me to do that for 17 years. Really? And then I worked day and night forever on that talk. Did you? Months, yeah, day and night. I didn't even watch one thing during that conference because I was just studying all the, all the notes of what I needed to remember and then I converted it to bullet points. What are the nerves going into something like that given that it's out of your comfort zone? Well, that's another thing that's very interesting. So when I was trying to figure out how to do this, I started reading all of the books on public speaking. And the first thing that was a really interesting approach, by the way, was learning why we're afraid to public speak. I'm not afraid to go on a white sharks in the ocean with no cage, but public speaking, I was, I was very uncomfortable, very nervous to do it. Still? No, 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 no. I put myself in the boiling pit. But once you understand the psychology of why we're afraid to public speak, it becomes really interesting. So do you know the... No. What, what would be your first thought? I mean, you don't want to mess up. All eyes are on you doing something but what's that you're with, What's the problem with all eyes on you? Self-conscious, uh, uncomfortable. The reason that we're so uncomfortable public speaking is because when all eyes on, are, are on you, if you go back a million years, 
and you think about every eye on you, it's somebody that's a predator, wants to hunt you. So having all the eyes on you while you're on an open plateau and you're elevated, you're in a place of extreme danger if you go back. So the evolution of the brain hadn't changed that much. So we still, even though we're now not in a dangerous place to be on a stage, we're, we're wired to have that fear of being hunted, or being, being chased by a predator. Once I started to process that, then I started to accept it. And then once you accept it, then the fear starts to change. And then after that talk, I went with Washington Speakers Bureau and I had them just book me to do talks. And I started doing, you know, 10,000 people and I would go up on stage and I would not even prepare. I would just go up and I would just wing it. And most of the time it was terrible but because it would hit like one in 10 or something. Yeah. But it really started to make me comfortable with the process. I want to take you uh, back to what I think's your big break. Uh, take me into the office with then ABC Entertainment Chairman Ted Harbert. Ted was amazing. So Alan Berger in 1993, I think, I showed him a video that I shot where I'm doing magic to people on the streets and the idea was all different walks of life, you know, all different ethnicities, all different age groups, you know, every combination I could come up with. I literally walked around New York City for two days and found just amazing people, did imagine them, edited it together with two VCRs. Then I showed Alan Berger, and back then, he said, yeah, but this doesn't work on TV. It's great, but this concept doesn't work on TV. And that was a day of world's greatest magic specials and all those big illusion shows. And Alan, by the way, is one of the biggest agents out there. He's an incredible agent. And, and I've been with him this whole time. So he flew back home. And he said that he fell asleep that night and, and kept dreaming about the concept. So then he called me, uh, he called Johnny, my agent at the time at ICM. He said, why don't we send him out to go meet the different heads of the networks? So Ted Harbert was first, he was the president of ABC. And I showed him the tape, I did some magic to him in the room. Then I stepped outside and did a trick with him over the phone. And when I was leaving the meeting, he called Alan and he said, what do we have to do to keep him from going to any other networks? And I had met Spike Lee and done, done magic to him at, at something before that. And I said, one day if I do commercials, will you direct them? And he's like, sure. So I said, oh, I, I want Spike Lee to do the commercials. And uh, Ted said, okay. And that was the first TV special. I don't know Ted uh, well, but I've met him before. And he actually uh, texted me uh, something for you. Great. <laughs> David, the first time I met you, when Alan Berger brought you to my office at ABC, I think it's 1993 or something crazy Whoa. like that, you did a bunch of tricks in my office that, that blew me away. But then you went outside my office to my <laughs> assistant's office and on the phone did another trick where you got the card. David has kept me up for 20 <laughs> years now, 30 years, oh my God, 30 years. Uh, you just I know you're not gonna tell me how you did it. Is it a math thing? It keeps me up at night. Just, is it a math thing? <laughs> That's really funny. Still no money, still living in my friend's pantry, but I had a, a, my first TV show. And then what I did is I hooked up with Stephen Chow. He was the CEO of Fox. He created Cops. He put America's Most Wanted on the air. But the, so every magic show, like I said, was one direction. I started thinking the opposite direction. So if you take magic and you put it 
in, in rough, real environments and different environments and show the diversity of people and show the beauty of their reactions, then that's really interesting, more than the tricks that people know. It's an illusion or it's this and that. So that was, that was the beginning of that process. And luckily, I found Stephen. And we worked every day almost for a year to make 44 minutes of TV. And that's, by the way, why I'm at such a crossroads right now. It's because th that, that's how I started working, was you put everything you have into making really good content. So you work forever to do it. And now it's about just turnaround, because there's so many different channels and outlets for content, or you know, YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat, and Facebook, you know, all the... So my brain, I never understood... That process is really complicated for me. So how are you navigating that? I haven't been. <laughs> I'm terrible at it. Uh, I mean, is that good or bad? Or time um, I should probably figure it out. I do love the, 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 that, that idea of you know, 15 seconds and tell the whole story. I think it's great and quick and fun. But yeah, my, the, the way I built everything was the opposite of that. When you look back today, 20, 25 years later, uh, on kind of those early specials, what's your reaction? Oh, it's so hard for me to watch anything of myself without Is critiquing it? it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anything that I watch myself, I just see the flaws. I'm like, ah, I wish I did this. So it's hard. What do you remember from the Prospect Park librarian uh, who wow. gave you the magic book? Um, well, it, she walked me through a self-working trick when I was a kid in Brooklyn at the library, which was right by my house. And I used to go there, and I always had a deck of cards in my hands. So one librarian walked me through a very simple self-working magic trick. And that was kind of like, the beginning of me starting to perform, I guess. And then my mother came, and I would do the trick to her, and then she would go crazy. And then I also found a picture. Can, you, can we grab that little stack of pictures that's right there? The, the getting into magic is a really complicated thing. So here's something I found, which I thought was really funny. So this is... So this is me and my friend Isaac watching a magician doing a string trick at Coney Island. <laughs> and I have the, the Coney Island Aquarium shirt on. So that's my first time watching somebody doing magic. My mom couldn't afford to buy tricks for me. So it was like one deck of cards was it. Luckily, because that's why I had to work on and learn things. But Isaac's uncle or grandfather gave him uh, a special magic trick with two coins, and Isaac couldn't figure out how to do it. I remember I took it, and immediately I was able to do the trick, and then I was able to do it to him and to his mom, and everybody you know, was like, whoa. So Isaac's like, wow, you can really do magic. But I, I was just, so I, I think early on I had a knack for understanding the magic tricks. And I think you went to magic camp, later went yeah. back as a, a counselor, at uh, 10 years old, I believe you were. How much does that build your confidence? Some of the older counselors, like Johnny Ace Palmer, some of the older counselors that were there, like really sat with me and really helped me learn and present magic tricks. And then I would add my ideas to it. But what it was was learning to work with a team and learning to hang out with people that inspire you. So hanging out with magicians that inspired me, was that was my whole life. Most of my growth in magic is, is, is through that. And, and how so? 
you bounce ideas, you play. I mean, a lot of it is a performance, but 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 much inspiration comes from spending time with guys that I find amazing. Why did you study acting briefly early um, well, on? Well, first of all, there was no such thing as succeeding at magic by doing magic on TV like that. So there was a quote, which is actually from Robert Houdin, who's Houdini took his name from, but Orson Welles uses this quote and it says, a magician is just an actor playing the part of a magician. So when I studied, I went to the neighborhood playhouse and they had this amazing coach, his name was Richard Pinter. And I would do magic on stage in front of the class. So yeah, it was, it was the most valuable learning curve probably in my presentation of magic. And so you start performing at uh, upscale uh, restaurants or doing tricks at upscale yeah. restaurants that like later 17 18 19 yeah you occasionally uh, then start getting hired to do parties I think one of the early ones was by Diane von uh, Furstenberg yeah, uh, yeah. How, how much did that and the kind of a-list type parties kind of help uh, or, you know early on it, it taught me early on that you can see what makes somebody amazing and it's not what they have around them, it's who they are inside. And for some reason, magic really, in a streamlined way, it really gets to the person's core. How did the Steiner family impact you? Steiner? Yeah. Amazing. I was doing magic at a party. He brought me to the south of France to do magic at his house. I was supposed to stay for a week, I ended up staying for the whole summer. And you're how old at this time? I think I was 19. They gave me heavy, fast culture and brought me everywhere, and I learned quickly. And also, the way Jeffrey was was really interesting. He, you know, he was he was an early billionaire, and he was very powerful and very incredible. But the way he spoke was he would speak quietly, but have such a strong command that he, you know, people would edge in to listen. I think I watched him and absorbed and learned a lot fast. What I learned from him was. Anybody is capable of achieving anything, and don't judge anybody. You know, he took me, I was a kid doing magic at, at a bar mitzvah, and he was like, here, come spend the summer with me and my family. Tell about running into Jack Nicholson at a club. Yeah, exactly. So I'd, I'd be out and I'd run into all these people that I, you know, watched repetitively, cuckoo's nest over and over. They'd say, oh, they, you know, they'd announce that I was doing magic there to Jack, and then. It would be really cool. So it was young and, and amazing. What's the deal with you and knocking on wood? Oh yeah, superstitious, Jewish maybe. Superstition runs in the blood. <laughs> yeah, so I get really crazy with all that stuff. I, and when I'm training to do something, I start to get really insane about it. Like I'll stop the motorcycle and jump off and knock on a tree really fast and then jump back on the bike. Yeah, so it, it almost becomes a, overwhelming. There's a Yoda out, out here and the reason the Yoda is here is because my mother used to love Yoda. We watched Star Wars again when I was five and um, that was her favorite character and before I did the Oprah breath hold I was, I was living on 11th Street and it's late but that store next to the Strand on 11th Broadway it was like a comic book store so I see Yoda in the window and I'm like oh wait I need that Yoda to be able to do the breath hold. And not no, because it's easy to crack on the breath hold, right? So my mom, Yoda, connected, and I, I'm like, I need this thing. So I buy the Yoda, but now it won't fit in a taxi because the arms are so outstretched, pre-Uber days. So 
I have to carry Yoda from 11th Street to here. Well, I should be, you know, resting, getting ready to do the breath hold on Oprah. But my point is, is my superstition made me think that I needed Yoda. Do you think the superstitions in any way become detrimental to everyday life? I think superstitions in a weird way are important because I think it just shows your dedication to what you're trying to do. For example, when I'm running on a treadmill, let's say I decide I'm going to do a, a 5K. So I won't stop at the 3.1, I'll have to go to the 3.2 and then I'm like, wait, well I might as well just go to the 3.5. So that mentality, which is based on, you know, the idea of like, it starts with the superstition, but it's like push further, push further. I think that translates in when you're trying to do something like hold your breath for 17 minutes. You said somewhere in my work, I have extreme self-discipline in my life. I have none. It's true, and I think it's like you go from one extreme to the other. So it's like right now I haven't started the training, I'm procrastinating, I'm currently 25 plus pounds overweight. I need to get back in the other mindset so I can start putting the show in Vegas together safely. But I'm also that last minute person. I wait until the last possible second and then I'm like, okay, I have 76 days until the show. That gives me two and a half pounds per week, which means I'll be able to safely lose, let's call it 23 pounds, and it, whatever the, the math is, and then, okay, I'll be there just in time. Always been a procrastinator? I think I work best under pressure. I think that's my thing. I, mean, I think growing up with a single mother in Brooklyn and spending our first you know, nine years like that where I was kind of in charge until she got remarried and then things changed, obviously. But up till then, I was like, let's wing it and get it done. It did seem years ago that doing a Vegas show wasn't necessarily something that was of that much interest to you. Um, what changed? Well, I walked into the theater my agent said, you know, we should look at the different venues. And when I saw the theater, I was like, whoa, I can build something crazy in this room. So that was kind of, a, that was kind of it. And from when you guys first started talking about it to It's been a actually, couple of years. Yeah, it's, it started during COVID. And uh, your level of excitement for the show is what? I think it'll be amazing. I'm excited to build it. Very. You have one weekend a month for three months. For two years. Uh, what made you decide kind I of- I think physically that show can only be done that much. So it was kind of a perfect s storm. And did you know that going in? Yeah. Yeah, I knew that I had done a tour that had things that weren't as difficult because I'm adding some more that's even more ambitious physically. So- Because the tour I visited you on, uh, this was, that was a couple yeah, of years ago now, yeah. it was shocking to me that you're able you, to, yeah, this is added to that. to that, so the less is more. And I, I also want it to feel m more like an event than a, than a typical show that you can just go any night of the week. So I want it to be limited and special. How much do you agonize like over your work? With, I mean, it's full time. That's all you think about. All consuming. Yeah, and I think magicians are very similar. I think most magicians that I'm friends with they know nothing but magic. I mean, they study, they read, they, they, they love art, because that's all part, they, cinema, but that's all part of magic, I think. But like, if you ask them about, you know, who won the NBA playoffs, very few, almost none of my magician friends can answer that. I think most magicians, including myself, become all consumed in magic. What about uh, practicing cards? 
because I, I non-stop. This is one of the first times. I mean, I'm sitting here for this long without cards, but the only reason why is because I just watched something of myself and I was playing with cards the whole time, and it was really annoying because the sound kept going. So I said, okay, I'm not going to play with cards. I'm doing interviews. You'll sometimes do it eight hours a day. All day, yeah, all the time. Yeah, they just feel amazing. You know, and I love the way cards. I love the moves, the technical part of it. The digital fixation, it's just, yeah, it's just the whole thing. Can you go an entire day without touching cards? Oh, very difficult. I think it's also meditative on, on many levels. Yeah, so? Just the way, if you see a magician playing with cards and you see other magicians and one guy's like, suddenly you'll see every magician have to pull their cards out because it just feels, even just talking about them, like inching, you know, to, to grab the deck. But but the point is, is yeah, it's, it's, it's something that just, uh, you know, it's just the fluidity. Yeah, it just feels incredible. In what ways was Houdini your role model? That was kind of my education. So I would study books on Houdini, look at images of him, and I think it started to make me dream up what was possible and what could be done and think about magic in a different way, about real versus tricks and stuff like that. Take me through your process for developing an idea. So I start with something. I start with a simple idea or I see an image, and then I'm like, wait, that would be interesting, but it's not magical. But if you took that idea and stripped away this part of it, because Houdini wrote that Mac Norton, who was the guy that was a human aquarium that could store frogs and fish and stuff, this is 100 years ago in his book Miracle Mind, I say, wait, so, if Houdini's writing about this guy doing it with him on tour, Houdini definitely wasn't fooled. So Houdini really believed that this guy was able to store frogs and fish in his stomach in an aquarium, which is all the water and frogs he would drink in front of the audience. And then he'd bring up all the water and all the frogs and the fish. And if you take that away and you get rid of the messiness of it, and you can just do that where you have nothing, and suddenly there's a frog that's magical. And the sword was kind of the, the, the beginning of the process. So, you see, I had this thing made, and the frogs are on it, uh -huh. right? And then, so in order to get rid of the whole drink the water, bring up the water, I had to figure out how to go in and out of the esophagus so I could bring the frog up without the water. Mm -hmm. So it, it became, in my mind, if I could do this sword, then I can figure out how to control my stomach and my esophagus and be able to bring a frog up. So I learned that specifically yeah. to do that one trick with the frog. But then that led to another trick, which was I started thinking, what if I could swallow somebody's ring and then pull it out with a hanger? So then I had to learn how to put a hanger, you know, down my throat, and then I had to develop that trick. So the process is, you know, one thing from an old image of a poster, and then Houdini's book where he writes, this is how the trick, he must have really been doing it. Then it leads to, can I do it? Then it leads to, maybe I should learn how to control the esophagus, so it leads to sword swam, which leads to me learning how to do that trick with the frog, which then leads to another idea, which is, oh wait, what if I ate somebody's ring, put a hanger in and pulled it out? During early YouTube days when all the tricks were kind of being exposed, I started thinking it would be really interesting to figure out how to do things that are real and combine that with magic, so that way the, the the reality of it makes it 
just as interesting when the method is revealed as the trick that you're seeing. And was that realization, did that kind of change everything for you? No, because I was always doing that stuff. So it, it, I always liked the, the real stuff, even as a kid. That was the magic I was drawn to. So, you know, all the, the guys on Coney Island that were doing the crazy stuff. So yeah, it, I, I think I always, you know what it was? I think I always liked things that were believable. And I think that that's from growing up with, you know, a deck of cards, not like a, a magic kit. You know, because my mother could never buy a magic kit. So giving me a deck of cards that her mother gave to her that had tarot images on it, that was, that led me down the path of learning that you can do amazing things with a deck of cards and simple magic. My mother had a very difficult life, but it also made her the most amazing you know, teacher. She was incredible. It was a, the biggest blessing was to have a mom like that. And How would you kind of best explain the role she played in your life? She would read to me always. She'd take me to museums. She'd take me to libraries. She, she was very loving, very affectionate, and never critical, never judged anybody, had very little, but would be the first one to take her coat off and give it to a homeless woman in the park, in Prospect Park. And just, yeah, she was incredible. My mother was very health conscious, so she would buy a huge bag of brown rice, a huge thing of oatmeal, she'd have kale, we'd have all those healthy, nutritious things, but you know, we, it was a single mother working multiple jobs, and so yeah, we, we were, you know, didn't have much. When we were walking to school, we'd walk across the street. She didn't want to go past the toy store or anything that she wouldn't be able to ever get. One time I remember, I was at <laughs> go to school, it was raining, and I found a I said, Mom, there's money. It was raining really hard. And I picked up a $20 bill off the street, but she thought it was just probably a penny and that we were late. And when I, I remember when I pulled the 20 up, she saw it and we both started jumping up and down and hugging each other. And we, <laughs> and we were so excited and so happy. And then that day when we came back from school, she walked me right to the, that toy store. And with the 20 bucks, I picked out a Spider-Man doll, I believe. What did she do to make ends meet? Worked multiple jobs. Uh, waitress, school teacher, I mean, and then she'd send me away the whole summer so she could work and do whatever. So I'd go to those like camp friendships, those, you know, those programs where they take inner city kids and bring them up to this really pretty place. And there I think also, now that I think about it, I was in those magic programs at summer camp when I was like six, seven, eight. You said uh, she removed fear from you. How so? I think when you just give a kid that much love and confidence, I think that, that helps. I read somewhere that you were considering going to college, but then she got sick with the ovarian she, oh, cancer. She wanted me to go, yeah. She always dreamed of me going you know, to a great school, but when she got sick with cancer, that wasn't an option. I wanted to just succeed so I could help take care of her and stuff like that, yeah. What was it about uh, what you read in her uh, journals that journals uh, in unbelievable. impacted you kind of at the tail end of her life? The, all, her whole life is just, uh, it's, it's mind-blowing. Starting with her childhood, growing up the way she did. She grew up from a very wealthy Jewish mafia family her 
great uncle was he you know he was he owned the Riviera I think he was a first son of gambling in New Jersey he was partners with Meyer Lansky he had all these casinos and I think that that kind of corrupt money I think set her on a mission of her own that she didn't want to be a part of that and I think she left her family left everything she was went from New York City to moving into Brooklyn after a suicide attempt when she was 18 and then she just tried I think tried to find meaning and and just like I said became a school teacher inner city kids and social worker and put herself through uh, Brooklyn College at that point. What were her concerns for you that you read in her journal in her remaining days? I think her main concern was that I would always be alone, but that didn't happen. I have an amazing family. I have an incredible daughter. How do you view uh, your dad today? Why my biological father, he overdosed on heroin and died, so I didn't, I never really knew him. I knew he gave my mother a really tough time. What did he say to her a few days before she's well, due with you? Well, when, when she told him that she was pregnant, he just disappeared. So she didn't see him until the day that I was born. And one of her friends said that my mom's having a tough time in the hospital. You should go say something because she knew him. And he went to the hospital, looked there, said, I don't love you anymore. I love another woman. Goodbye. So, <laughs> And my mother already had the craziest life to begin with. but. Because it was just me and her, she put everything in, in everything into her boy. So I just saw him every now and then. One time he was smoking and he burnt the apartment down. <laughs> we had to run out of the house. And I was also had lots of fires growing up, by the way. What was the situation where, and I found this remarkable, that you know, you're know you a kid and there's a board between yeah, two windows, it, yeah, 10 Yeah, it wasn't exactly up. like he just threw me on it and said walk. I think he was holding me tightly, but I think he was teaching me, like, you don't need to have fear. But it might have worked. So maybe that, that whole psychology of him teaching me not to be afraid, because he was probably so traumatized and so afraid at the, in war. It's, it's sad that he had such a difficult life, but he was in Vietnam and he didn't sign up to go. He was drafted and it's either you go to jail or you go to Vietnam. And I think the only way you get people to just point their guns and shoot people that for no reason is, you know, in many cases, such as my biological father, they started taking AAA grade morphine, right? They would raid infirmaries, and then they got back to New York. My mother had waited for him, and he was now hooked on heroin, you know? So I think it was it's, it's tough. And he saw some horrific stuff yeah, crazy. over there, right? Yeah, he saw his best friend get gutted, gutted alive while hanging from a tree in front of him and things like that, so, yeah. And, and would have these nightmares when he came back home. Yep, horrific, yeah. And he would just react and it became uh, violent. So I don't know the details, obviously, but I've heard terrible stories. You ran into him uh, yeah, later seen, in life. Yeah, yeah, at, I've seen him, at, yeah, I've seen him a few times. And a cop called me, said, you're next of kin. Your biological father is dead. He overdosed on heroin. Um, and that was that. I, I, what was I, your reaction? I didn't know him very much, so my reaction was, I was protective of my mother. So, you know, and so when you have one side of a story, you don't really, the other side is 
So, yeah. Health issues you have today associated with your career? I think metabolism took a, a hit, probably from all the breath holding. They say short-term memory loss, but short-term memory rebuilds itself apparently. Um, and then I would guess the, the unknowns from eating glass, kerosene, these things, probably there's a lot of residual effects that I don't really know about yet. And on the munching on glass, I mean, it's probably you, not you, a good idea. Well, I mean, you have issues today, right? The, it, oh, well, there's no enamel on my teeth and things like that. But the other thing is, there's like a chemical in the glass. So the chemical that that they use to make glass, that's also going into your body. So, not the best idea. You said before you think you're going to die in your 60s, or high likelihood. No. Well, what I said is, if I was betting as an insurance guy, betting on you know, life expectancy of, first of all, Houdini died at 52. A bunch of magicians did die at the age of 52, but he was very, you know, extreme and really pushed himself. So I mean, you're no different. When things are tough and they're difficult, that's when I'm alive. And that's also when I feel the most creative, that's when I work the most. So I do believe that comfort does in most cases, in my case at least, puts a complete damper in, in being creative or getting anything done. So it's the opposite of achievement. I think I do push myself a lot, but now that I have a daughter, I don't even want that risk anymore. So the way I approach things is very different, very calculated. And when you'll do these bigger stunts, explain the like mental goals, almost short-term mental goals you'll set for yourself along the way? I, I think that's just the math part of my brain. So I like to break things down into, into numbers. So if I know I have to do 44 days, which seems like a long time to go without food and just water, it's not as hard to realize 22 days and make that possible. So the first goal is how do I get here? And for fasting, I'd done all of my stunts previous to that. But the fasting was just the side footnote that wasn't really discussed. But when I was buried alive for a week, I didn't want to eat the week before because I didn't want to have to go to the bathroom in the coffin, obviously. So that was really a 14-day fast. So that kind of led me to loving that part of it. Because when you fast, the brain changes again and everything becomes really incredible. You know, all the, all the things that yogis and, and, and monks talk about during their fasting and during their cutoff of all the things that you daily you think about, that changes your brain and suddenly become aware of things that you would never think of. So, and describe what that's like when you're actually in it, by the way. It just becomes amazing because you realize how much your day is based around your next meal or what you're going to, you know, and that consumes a lot of time. And when you take that away, you realize that you're fully functional. But not only that, now your brain is thinking about things that you never thought about, you know, and even just the way you see colors. You look at the sky and you're like, oh my God, you know, so it, it, it triggers something that that's incredible. So then I started, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to London and do a long fast and the whole stunt will be only about the water fast. And I was like, okay, this is doable and I'm going to push it just to this point because I think I can come back with uh, no permanent damage. And, and did you? Yeah, for the most part. What's for the most part? And I think my, my, my heart wall, my BM, my bone mass index, everything had decreased by about 33%. I lost 60 pounds in 44 days. and. Uh, yeah, it was, it was intense. What did the recovery process entail from that? 
Well, the doctors were skeptical, even my own doctor, who was like a top starvation expert. They thought I was taking glucose or, or something, or uh, electrolyzers, but it wasn't. It was just pure H2O. At the end of the stunt, when I went to the hospital, phosphate levels went really fast, and I almost went into shock and probably could have died, which is how lots of people actually that are bulimic or starving themselves, they actually, you know, become at, at real risk once they start to feed them. So he, he had a good collection of data and use that information to publish a paper. But that was the most dangerous part for you, you felt like, when it came time to refeed? No, I don't know. I think, I think that was the most dangerous part for just the team. For me, at around day 40, my heart started feeling really strange. I kept thinking I was gonna go into cardiac arrest, things. So there was a, an extreme risk based on what I was feeling but then I got a message from somebody that, that was outside that brought a sign that said, God is love, and that was the last thing my mother said. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna make it. <laughs> and your body started consuming oh, its yeah, organ yeah, walls, yeah, right? Yeah, because you would think it just goes after the fat, but it doesn't. So it goes after muscle tissue and fat, and then it switches to your organs, and it goes, so your organs start to decrease in size. And you really start to feel the muscle tissues when your body's eating it. It really becomes painful everywhere and I don't recommend anybody to do an extended fast at that level. I think a few days is great. <laughs> 63 hours in a block of ice. Uh, why do you call that I think it was meant to be. I think it was meant to be longer, and I think I showed up late, but that was the hardest one by far, and it was, I think it was because standing up the entire time, plus the radiation of the cold, even though it was a warm November, it was like 68, so the air being pumped through was, you know, at it, it, it a room temperature, but that made the ice continuously drip on me. And then you're fighting your own brain. It's like one half of you is saying, go to sleep, you're gonna die. The other half is like, no, I have to achieve this goal. And it becomes like a battle against yourself. And then the brain just gives out. And then I started having hallucinations while I was awake, but I couldn't tell whether this is real, is this real life, or am I dreaming with my eyes open? And that was the case. I was having nightmares and dreams while my eyes were open. Starting at hour 55, so it was probably only like eight or nine hours left. But they're long, you know, those hours. When did your team realize you were in trouble? When the guy that was working on the stunt, because they said it was a warm November, so the ice was dripping a lot, so he was vacuuming under the ice and hit the catheter, which I, and, I went, and that, was, <laughs> that was the beginning of like downhill. <laughs> it feels so bad to this day, but it's not his fault. So I always say, there, if there was one thing I wouldn't do, but now there's a few, but if there was one I would never redo, it's the ice. For nothing in the world would I do that. Because I have a daughter and I don't want to kill myself, I also wouldn't do the 44 days. The buried alive, I feel like anybody could do that. The breath hold, I do it still all the time against all advice because I have a heart condition. Um, What's the heart condition? Just I have 50% stenosis, so I get uh, half the supply blood to the heart because my right coronary artery takes an irregular path between my pulmonary artery and my aorta, which reduces blood flow to the heart, which may also be the reason I can hold my breath because maybe the body compensates and I have a higher red blood cell, I don't know. I want to ask you, in terms of stunts you have done, the breath holding on Oprah, what's going through your mind? Before Oprah, obviously I wanted to be sure that I wasn't gonna fail. 
So I worked diligently with a great team, had pulmonary experts, had, had neurovascular surgeons, had doctors, had free divers, had everybody with me. But I was in a pool with all the telemetry hooked up and I was doing a breath hold and I had gotten to 20 minutes and two seconds. But my heart had dropped to eight beats per minute and they thought that I was gonna suddenly go into a cardiac arrest and die, so they pulled me out of the water, and I was like, why did you do that? It was like I was in an amazing, <laughs> it was like incredible. So I felt, I felt comfortable that I could succeed with the record at the time, which was 1632. So you're on Oprah now, which is much different because, you know, this is the national television program. Well, I'll tell you the what the issues were. So we had a pulmonary expert come in, and I was hooked up, but the machine, they left it right next to my ear, which was annoying and awful and made the heart rate go quicker and, and, and then I had ischemia of the heart so it would go high then low. Top of that, because for the audience I wanted to be facing this way. So I was used to training where I just float face down, which makes it much easier. But now I wanted to be this way, so I had to put my feet into the, these things because I had a, a wetsuit on to keep me from going up and I had to use extra energy to keep the body down. So suddenly I was like, oh no, this, isn't, this is live and we're in the middle of it and things aren't gonna be right. At one point, I didn't think I was gonna make it. I was sure that I was gonna black out and that would be it. And you thought you were gonna go into cardiac arrest? Yeah. At the end there? Yeah, but then when I got closer to the 16 plus mark, I was like, okay, I'm good. The uh, kerosene and water in, in your mouth. I had watched that act since I was a kid. It was yeah. a guy named Haji Ali that would drink a big glass of kerosene and a gallon of water. The kerosene would float on top of his stomach and then he would blow the kerosene out onto a fire and make an enormous fire. So it was like, a, he was like a human dragon. And then he would use the water to put out the fire. So I was, I was like, whoa, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. So I always wanted to learn that. I still think that's like the most dangerous because just drinking that much, you know, kerosene or lamp oil, which is, they filter the, the, they use chemicals to get rid of the odor. So it's even more dangerous than kerosene, but drinking it and then having it go in your stomach, the problem is the oil residue. So I'm trying to figure out if there's an alcohol base, like a Bacardi 151, which is very flammable, that I can drink, not swallow and then blow the fire out. The fire comes back really quick. So anyway, I'm, I'm working on that for this new show. I'm trying to figure out a solution. Have you ever been, when you've had the kerosene down in you, like freaking out a little bit? Yeah. When I did it at Harrison Ford's house, it, made the, it makes your heart and your body just goes really weird. Yeah, so that, I think that was probably the last time that I drank that much kerosene. The bullet catch, which you've done on a couple of occasions. Yeah, uh, this guy, this is him, Billy Robinson, and this is him as Chung Ling Su, and he played a Chinese conjurer because 100 years ago, if you were from China and a magician, you're very mysterious, very interesting, so he wouldn't speak, and he would do the bullet catch on stage, and I thought it was so nice the way he did it, though. It was so cool looking. He'd have them shoot him from the audience, and it was like a a path that went out into the audience straight towards him. And he was in London performing the bullet catch and the bullet catch went wrong, struck him, 
and he yelled, someone close, someone lower the curtain, I've been shot. And suddenly he sounded like an American. And the whole audience laughed. They thought he was kidding. They thought it was funny. Then he dropped dead on stage in front of everybody. And see how he did it? It just looks, it did look so cool. You see? Yeah. So it's kind of like that story about Chung Ling Su's bullet catch and the story about Robert Houdin. There's such a rich history of it, so I wanted to do it, but. And presumably there's even less opportunity for precision. Well, he did it as a trick. Yeah. He didn't really catch it. So the guy that I studied with was named Carl Skeens, and he did it on That's Incredible. And he had his wife shoot him in a metal cup in his mouth, and he had done it hundreds of times. So I had him help me figure out a way to do it for real, which is put a metal cup in your mouth, have a bullet shot into the metal cup. And then I started thinking, but if I'm gonna do this on stage, I think I have to do it to myself. And I started thinking, if we put a string onto the trigger, put a laser on a scope, and then <laughs> I, I believe your head of production temporarily quit. Yeah, uh, my, my, my top magician consultant. He said, if you do this again, we're, we're, I'm not helping you at all. And then that, and then just the, all the gun violence and everything, it made me reluctant. I'm like, no, forget this. What was the scariest part of the times you've done it? I think that the scary part is before the fact, not when you're doing it. When you're first trying to actually solidify the idea, I think that's kind of, you know, you're like, Who, how am I gonna do this? You know, so, so the assembly of it. But it was like when I did the balloon flight, when my daughter came, the whole thing was dialed in and safe and perfect, so there would be no risk of, of really anything. We worked really hard to get there. But leading up to it, I had to do almost 500 jumps and it had to be done quickly. So we were doing 10, 12 a day. And uh, yeah, I had to get a pro rating so I could jump over a congested area. And you aren't insured for much of I couldn't that. be insured yeah. for any of that actually. So until the real stunt, but the whole 500 jumps was on me. So that, the scary part was the off the books part that I was doing on my own. Ironically, no injuries whatsoever. The first jump that I did recreationally, like a year after the, the balloon stunt, I, I, I was flying with a friend, he was holding on to me so another guy could get a picture of us. And then when I came back, I was so far away from a good landing spot that I landed on something just double broke and triple ripped the ligaments on the ankle. So mm. the big injury that I had was just on a recreational jump. But it was also the one time that I didn't treat it very seriously. You know, I wasn't focused and I wasn't prepared. I didn't have my equipment, didn't have my, but what I had done the 500 jumps with. So it just shows you, it's like, you know, that level of focus and seriousness has to be applied at, at all times. You'd said in an article, um, I'd like to figure out how to be happy more. I just mean, you know, there's so much to be, you know, grateful for, right? Like, you could be in an extreme situation where everything seems really difficult, but you could take that and use it to build and, and become stronger and look at it as like, oh, I'm lucky that I went through this versus, oh, this is terrible, life is unfair. You said long ago uh, you're reluctant to let people in or get close to people. In, in what ways do you see it come out in you? I think just as a magician, you're also in a world where you're not like, you work on things, but you're like very guarded about who you share the things with, you know? Right. So you're very, very protective over ideas. You know, so I think it all, I think it all go hand, it's hand in hand. How would you say the risks you take impact, like 
relationships with significant others. When Dessa was one, I did the electrified thing, and then that was the longest break that I ever had, which was almost a decade before I did another stunt. So it just, it, the way I think about things changed as soon as I had a daughter. Previous to that, I, I wasn't afraid, you know, if, if a shark bites my leg off, so be it. <laughs> you know? So before that, I was, I was a little more you know, willing to take a, a risk, whereas now, I'll make sure that there's you know a cage close enough by that if the shark starts to come at me, I could get in the cage. Right? What about on the dating front? Like, what's it? Yeah, I like think it's. Date? I think dating a magician is 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 for a start already strange. You know, I think a magician is very. We keep all of our walls up, and we, you know, our world is all consumed by magic. So I think that makes it complicated. And I think that the reason people become a magician is because they already have that that brain chemistry, like, like they've already built that wiring of, I'm, you know, I'm gonna stay alone, I'm gonna practice magic, it's weird, I don't care if the other kids don't accept me because I have my cards, I have my magic, so, so I think that magicians have in common. It's only, I, I think it's similar to like comedians in some level, or, or it, it's like, it's it's, it's it's its own world. Mm -hmm. But you feel great when you're with other magicians, you know, because you have that same language that same communication. And that communication is about the, the cards or the, the numbers or the logic or the science or the creativity. And that, that's where all the energy and focus goes, I think. How much desire, if any, do you have to one day get married? I mean, I'm open to everything. I mean, is that, is that something you want for your life or let's put it like this i'm the first person that cries over any romantic movie <laughs> so like any movie that comes on including greece i'm showing it to my daughter and i just start crying she's like why are you crying papa <laughs> i'm also the first one that tells my brother everybody marry her she's amazing just marry her so yeah i believe in all of that stuff i think i'm just you know there's a part of me that's guarded and and afraid of being abandoned and you know things like that and, and then again I think that goes to the whole magician's construct. Fatherhood impacted you how? The greatest experience of my entire life. It gives you a purpose and it's funny because I, I used to see people showing pictures of their kids now I'm that guy you know there's nothing greater in life so doing magic tricks and all this stuff sure it's entertaining and fun but no having a daughter is the whole point of life and existence so yeah it's the most fulfilling rewarding experience that i'll ever have and by the way it's hard to continue doing magic because i just want to be with my daughter <laughs> you know i'm just saying yeah that's the greatest feeling and experience that you can that for me personally that you could ever have in life i mean in, in every way you know, the things shift. What you think was important before is no longer important. So the, the, the main thing that's important is just being the best dad that I can be and being there for her and, and uh, teaching her everything that I love, watching her grow and learn and supporting that. That's, that's, that's my priority now. Of course, the work is important and doing magic, I still love. It's my passion, it's my drive and my focus, of course. But the, the, now that's not the only, now there's something much more important. How would you feel if she got into magic? 
Great, but uh, I, I support anything that she wants to do, and she's so amazing and so talented, and she isn't the magic. She's incredible at it. I want to touch on some uh, celebrity interaction. First, uh, Mike Tyson's people accidentally taking your suitcase. Oh, amazing. Running into Mike at that point was incredible. And you're how old? I don't remember, but uh, young. And uh, it was like my first trip to LA, and, and brown Toomey suitcases were the thing, and so he, there was like 100 getting thrown into his cars, and mine was missing. And I say, oh, I think you guys might have taken uh, one of my bags. You go, go knock on that limo. And I knock on the window and the thing rolls down. Spike, he's like, you got a problem? <laughs> and I was like, no, Mike, I, I used to print you on my shirt. And he goes, jump in. <laughs> so I sit in the limo. And in the ride back to his hotel, I was doing magic to him the whole time. And, uh, and he said, you know, I wasn't meant to be the heavyweight champ. I was too short. My reach isn't good. He's like, but I had nothing to lose and therefore I had everything to gain. And he's like, you know, he, he gave me little amazing bits of wisdom, which is like, you, you work really hard, you don't look back, you focus on the big goal. You know, it was, it was amazing, yeah. Madonna. Amazing. You guys, you guys yeah. dated, right? No, we were very close, and we're still close. And uh, what was amazing was early on, I would watch how she builds shows, so I would go to the museum with her and things like that. And I would see her looking at all the art and all the photographs and just writing little thoughts for what she's going to put into her shows. And yeah, she's an incredible, amazing, powerful woman. I was lucky to, to become friends with. Still to this day, it's always inspiring and always her last show. The amount of thought and processes, very few people can do that. The way she checks every little detail, every nut and bolt on the stage, on all the props, it's, it's crazy. It's amazing. President Bush and buttering up the Secret Service beforehand. <laughs> I stole his watch. I think we were in China and I was at a gig. So yeah, I, I got them comfortable with the idea that like I can grab and manipulate people. Look, here you go, move here, move here, come here. You know. So when I start handling or, or doing whatever, they wouldn't think I was gonna like stab him, you know, do something crazy. Bobby Fischer? Yeah, I spoke to him on the phone. I never got to meet him, but I talked to him and he was incredible. I spoke to him about you know, magic and about chess and things like that. He's not somebody who's one to open up. So like, what was that dynamic like? He was, he was amazing. You know, he spoke like a, a normal guy, not angry at the world. And I played it to a friend of mine who he had written a piece on him about chess when he was really young. And that piece was, you know, the, the connection between me and this guy, and he was like, oh my God, I knew that side of Bobby as well. And I think the people that played chess with him knew that normal side of him. Like the, not the side of, you know, I hate America and this and that. That side he never really expressed overall. How long before his death did you last talk to him? Pretty recently, right, right before his death. And he said, I'm in Iceland, you should come visit me, but I didn't really, understand what he meant exactly, so I didn't end up going, and then he had passed away, yeah. The prestige or the illusionist? Illusionist. Illusions or street magic? A street magic, yeah. Conan or Fallon? I like both of them. Frozen in time or buried alive? Well, buried alive, yeah. Electrified or submerged in water? Definitely in the water tank. Paris or New York? Both. <laughs> Paris because of my daughter, but New York because I grew up here. Uh, David Blaine or Harry Houdini? <laughs> Thanks for listening to my chat with David Blaine. 
to see him literally swallow a sword right in front of me and some jaw-dropping card tricks he performed for our crew, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. There's also more content on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, at Graham Bensinger. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.